0: What's up, bingers? On the docket for you today, we have an amazing guest. She is one of the hosts of the LA Not-So-Confidential podcast. She's brilliant, fascinating, and talented, the one and only Dr. Shiloh. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear... I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So Dr. Shiloh is your superhero name. Because no one knows your full name. Is that accurate?
1: (laughs) Um, We don't put it out there. I don't think it's hard to find. And there's more being written about us that they kind of have to use our last names at some point. So, you know, Uh it's not rocket science to find it. But, uh, yeah, we just like to go be casual about it.
0: I feel like given your profession – And the uniqueness of your name that you would be very easy to track down.
1: Oh my God. You are. Yeah. More so than Scott. From my first name (laughs) and then the last name that I married into, totally very unique. But, you know, I think it was way more of a concern when I was in the thick of it working with a lot of people getting out of prison and trying to. Oh, right. You know, keep that down because of working with a really highly manipulative, um, psychopathic population at times and and things like that so it's just and obviously you know talking to a fellow former first responder here you know it's just something that we did as a part of our life in that world is keeping as much privacy as possible
0: right when i started my first podcast i think i told dr scott this when i had him on but when i started my first podcast off duty i was chief i didn't let anybody know what my name was there you go there you for go. For that same reason, also because I worked for the government, and I didn't want them. Right. Uh, I didn't want to get in trouble for the, the the things that I was saying on the
1: podcast. Yeah, yeah. My my bosses now actually they they know about the the podcast. Um, you know, it's not not something I go out and talk about. But as you know, in that line of work, you usually have to get a sort of work permit to do anything else outside of mm-hmm. that work because they want you very focused <laughs> on your right, real right. job. Um, so I did have to reveal that, but they. They're very supportive, think it's really neat, and, um, you know, I just don't go around talking about it, but the people that need to know, know.
0: Right. Have you gotten to the point where, and I want to get into your background and what you do for your your full-time job, but have you gotten to the point yet where the pendulum has shifted to where you're more well-known for the podcast than your other professional work yet?
1: I guess it kind of depends with what audience or population so no, I, I think it, it, and maybe this is just because it's such a foundation for Scott and I of why we even do this podcast to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: feel like we're still in the, the box, if you will, of forensic psychologists first. And, mm-hmm. um, everything else is just anecdotal to that. And because of that. So, but you know, nobody really knew me <laughs> as a forensic psychologist run, running uh-huh. into me on the street or seeing my. My name somewhere. Um, so that's definitely a a different element. Sure. In, in the podcast world. But yeah, I think we're just, we're true to who, what we do first.
0: So you said, you said the reason you wanted to do the podcast to begin with. What was the reason? Why'd you guys start LA Not So Confidential?
1: We were both podcast consumers, but we were literally just chatting one day and I said, you know, there, it just seems to be a void of anybody actually working in the field talking about it from their perspective and that's, that's doing the work now. And it understandably, you know, it's, it's hard to do this and be in the job and have regular work commitments and then do a podcast. So, you know, I was finding a little bit with like students of forensic psychology that were maybe at the master's level who, like we all were, we're super excited about what they were learning. And so they were kind of just regurgitating maybe what they were learning in class or in books. And then, other than that, it was just true crime fans talking about, you know, what they could find and research in the way that they researched. So I really found that there was a void that Scott and I could fill. And I told him, I said, It wouldn't be something necessarily you and I would listen to, because why would we want to listen to two forensic psychologists talk about forensic psychology? Because that's what we do. But Mm -hmm. I think other people would. So, you know, that's kind of the funny part of the story that he was just like, no, we can't. We totally, like, cannot do something like that. That's going to take too much time. You're crazy. No one will listen. And then, you know, his little creative... Entertainment brain started. I didn't mean to say little. I don't mean little, but you know.
0: <laughs> You've heard it here. Yeah, first. yeah. Dr. <laughs> Scott has
1: a little brain. It's it started going. You know, I could I could smell the smoke from the wheels turning, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Here's what we're going to call it." And then I knew he was in on my little plan. After that.
0: Yeah, so he's got a pretty interesting background. You mentioned him being uh, in entertainment, uh, and we had him on Truth and Justice uh, right? a couple months ago. So what is what is your background? how did How did you get to be baby Dr. Shiloh to Dr. Shiloh, forensic psychologist and podcaster?
1: Well, the funny thing is I never wanted to be a psychologist. So I found myself here in a very, I think, unique way from other psychologists who set out on this journey, you know, very early on from even their undergrad. Um, but I grew up in a law enforcement family. So criminal justice was, just the norm for me. It was the talk around the dinner table at night. Um, both my, my mom, my dad and my stepdad, and then eventually a brother were all in law enforcement. So no matter whose house I was at, you know, on the weekends or during the week, you know, that, that was very much a part of my world. I mean, I, I always say that I grew up in police stations because that was, um, it, it, Not out of the norm for me to, oh, we got to go pick something up. Let's go to the station real quick or, you know, dropping by. And so it was always interesting to me. I knew I wanted to do something in criminal justice, but I really didn't want to be a patrol officer, a street cop. You know, that's what my parents had done. I think children always kind of strive to do something a little bit above and beyond what their parents laid the foundation for, for them. And I really liked investigation. I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm leaning towards more investigative. So I still want to do law enforcement, but I'm not quite sure. And then by the time I got into undergrad, I was double majoring in criminal justice and psychology. And we had a, we had a club, the um, criminal justice student association that I was very involved with and was the president of that, but we would have. Speakers from real jobs come in and tell us about their jobs. And we had a special agent from the California Department of Justice come in. And I thought, that's it. Like, I've found it. It's investigative. I don't have to work the streets. It has a really cool title, special agent, and I don't have to <laughs> go to the FBI. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it, you could simply get in with a bachelor's degree. You didn't need the experience that you needed to go into the FBI. So I thought, this is perfect and I can stay in California. So that was kind of my my vision from then on out. And I ended up going and getting a job as a civilian, as a police cadet at my local police department while I was an undergrad and really had some great opportunities there. I was working in their property and evidence department. So, you know, I would lug property and evidence down to the crime lab, the sheriff's crime lab in LA and um just working day in and day out with the detectives at the police department. So I end up graduating and California is on a hiring freeze. So I'm like, okay, well, I got a couple jobs. I got my degree. Let me see what happens in the next six months. And then a year goes by and they're still not hiring. So I, at that point, said I can't just wait around to do nothing, and I decided then I'm just going to go federal, I'm going to go to the FBI, Um, but I do need experience in something. And I'm not a linguist, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a lawyer, so I guess law enforcement it is. And I I went to my captain and said, hey, I'm thinking about putting in for officer, would you guys hire me? And I want to be honest and upfront that I'm not planning on staying here forever. And I know it's an investment in, in your, your officers, but this is where I'm at. And he was such a wonderful man and so supportive of women in law enforcement. And he said, I understand, just give me four good years because we are making this investment. And I said, great, because that's all I need to put it for the FBI. Mm-hmm, right. And, um, so they hired me, and I went to the L.A. County Sheriff's Academy, which is the agency my parents were with, which was kind of nice, and um started in my job working as a patrol officer here in Southern California. And then I thought – I got this wild idea about two years in that, you know, if I went and got my doctorate, the FBI cannot turn me down. So – right. You know, I was newly married and I told my husband, "All right, I'm going to graduate school." And um I started that journey and that ended up taking 5 years. And in my internship is where I met Dr. Scott. Um we spent a year doing work with sex offenders in Los Angeles when they're they're transitioning out into the community. So we were doing therapy and we were doing assessment work and I really, really loved it. It had been kind of my second internship with sex offenders, um, and I was really starting to like it rather than just kind of being that observer, you know, fly on the wall, curious person. And at the end of the internship, I did process with the FBI and was going that route and had made it through a few rounds, and they gave me a conditional job offer. So, they were about to start my background investigation, and then our internship said, Post graduation, we'd really like to hire you. We like what you're doing. And so here I was faced with this amazing new opportunity that I had never even really enticed, and this thing that had kind of been my dream for 10 years. But you realize, you know, you're in a different place at some point. I'm like, Do I want to go to another academy? Do I want to be sent anywhere? across the country that they want to send me to. And it was really just a a moment where I had to kind of undo some of my thinking that I'd been so laser laser focused on and realize that I was really happy doing what I was doing and I found it very fulfilling. And so I ended up ended up making the decision to stick in forensic psychology, working with offenders and um you know kind of never looked back. It it I worked primarily in that realm for, gosh, you know, a decade after graduation. And then, you know, there's there's enough vicarious and secondary trauma that comes in doing that type of work that I just felt like it's time for something else. Even though I love it, it's where I found like, feel like my expertise still is. And I do see a couple of people in private practice in the same area. So I keep my foot in the door there. Um, but it was time for a change. And Dr. Scott said, hey, I think, you know, this big law enforcement agency here in Southern California is looking for psychologists. You might want to look into it. And it was funny because when I was in grad school, everyone was like, oh, you're going to be a police psychologist, right? Because I was a cop while I was going through grad school. And I was like, hell no. I work right. with those guys every day. <laughs> like, No, thank you. <laughs> I'm good. Um, but I really, one, needed a change. Two, felt like it, it was giving back. And if I could be of service to the good guys, you know, um, that was really important. And I, I did my husband. I, I ended up marrying a police officer as well. Um, so I just felt like, Hey, I have, I have the practical experience. I have the, the emotional, intimate experience of being a family member. As well, um, maybe it's something I can get into. And it's one of the most amazing jobs in psychology. I love it.
0: It's It sounds like such a cool job. So, so the way you work, if I understand right, is with this big law enforcement agency is, do you assist them with active cases?
1: So – it's a little different than what Scott does. Um, so Scott works in a co-responder model where he has a, par- a detective as a partner, and they're following up on a lot of mental health-related stuff. So I actually, the clients, my clients are the employees of the department, sworn and civilian. So we do traditional clinical work. I do therapy. I do individual therapy, couples therapy. Um, there's some group work that my division does. And then we're also assigned as consultants to the various departments and stations within the police department. So I have about five different departments and a couple of stations assigned to me. So I'm like their house doc. So I'll go on ride-alongs. I'll go just walk around and talk to people. I'll do trainings for them when they need it. Just so they can like get to know us and not see us as these... Woo woo! Psychologist sitting in some ivory tower. Um, you really are embedded, which is wonderful. I, I love that aspect of it. I'll, I'll go to roll calls and say, you know, here's your little five minute mental health tip of the day before you guys go out on patrol, sort of thing. And I'll I'll theme it a little bit. So if it's like February, I'd be like, okay, here's re- your relationship building skills. <laughs> Let me give you these things you guys can do tonight when you get home and work on your relationships and. And then we're also part of the crisis negotiation team. So whenever our SWAT team has a call out for a barricaded suspect or a suicidal subject, a psychologist always rolls out to that to be a consultant on behaviors and mental health in real time with the team. So that's a lot of fun as well.
0: So do you work on, and I imagine if so, that your relationship with the officers has to help facilitate this, but do you work on like, Critical incident stress debriefings, where um, you know, as as a firefighter, we had it. You know, it, the military calls it post traumatic stress, and I'm sure there is a difference. But for us, when we had very um, emotionally taxing, str- you know, um, stressful, traumatic scenes, oftentimes we would then have what we called a critical incident stress management debriefing, um, where we would we would bring in a psychologist to break that down. And and at least in the fire service, it was always really difficult to get people. To do it because we're you know right. we're tough guys. Right. We don't need to talk about our feelings, and that was something that was really important to me when I got promoted to chief was to to have a culture where that was okay, where I would always go, and rather than say, because what what used to happen, you know, in, in my line of work would always be, we you know we had this horrible accident where a car flipped over and we were there while this whole family burned to death in front of us, and you could hear the screaming and things, you know, horrible scenes like uh-huh. that, and then the chief would come and be like, well. If anybody needs to talk to somebody, yeah, there's a psychologist coming, and then you'd watch the the looks go around the room and be like, "Nah, I'm good, chief. I'm just go, you know, I'll just go right. drink this one out." Is how it went down. Um, exactly. So are you involved in those? And and if so, does your relationship that you're you're building help with that?
1: Yes, we we definitely do those, and we're finding more and more ways to implement that, so it doesn't seem so weird with just one big incident. We are like, I'll give you some examples, some programs we started recently, aside from just the officer-involved shootings um, or some of the incidents like you're talking about, we, we've we started one with specifically our motor officers who handle all the traffic collisions. So just like you're explaining, they are seeing death and destruction more than anybody and in horrific ways. A, a car accident, a fatal car accident is unlike a lot of just the sort of average dead body calls you go on, right? Because of right. the destructive nature of it. So we kind of have a tier system where if it's a child or a teenager or something particularly horrific like decapitation or something like that, it's an automatic response by us. So we'll sort of come at it. We we like to go with the research in the literature. We don't want to overexpose people and re-traumatize them either. Um, but we might roll out that night, do a little quick diffusing where we tell them, okay, this is what happened. Thanks for meeting. This is what to expect to feel in the next few days. I don't want you to think it's weird if you guys feel this. You might feel none of this. It's varied among everybody. Um, and then a couple of days later, we might follow up with the actual debriefing group that you're talking about. And with those, we they are mandatory to attend, but People don't have to talk if they don't want to. So that's how we sort of get everybody there, where right. the captains make it mandatory, but it's voluntary whether or not they want to participate in speaking while they're there. They can just listen and take it in. But we've, we're starting to do it now with our dispatchers as well, um, our crime scene folks, because they just, you know, civilians always kind of get lost in a lot of this. And the priority ends up going to sworn folks. But we're really trying to all encompass, take care of our people because that's who we end up seeing in our office at some point then if it's never been addressed. So it's a lot of preventative measures.
0: Right. That's great. And then, of course, and we're going to get into a case that we're going to talk about where because you you also like to and to delve into the psychological behaviors of criminals which i find very fascinating i know a lot of my audience does too Mm -hmm. um so last question i want to talk about before we take a quick break and get into the case is tell me about your ink every time you lift your arm up i (laughs)
1: see that you have
0: you have a sleeve of tattoos which you know you you hear somebody on a podcast being very professional and you don't expect to see them covered in tattoos which i am i have the same problem
1: Uh, right right well (laughs) i i get that just because I'm a woman sometimes and then when I was a cop and then psychologist it's like oh 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 you know I take my jacket off all of a sudden and people are like wait what this is not what's this lining nerd up doing
0: with those tattoos
1: I know I know <laughs> um and it's funny I I just I talked about this on another uh podcast that I was a guest on she said the same thing like whoa you like lifted up your arm what's happening I have such an appreciation for the art of tattoo I think it's fascinating i am not a creative artsy person at all and i think it's an incredible experience i think everybody should go get one tattoo in their life just to sit through that but i i I, I love it i i do i have a i love japanese tattoo this is a three-quarter sleeve that is all finished and done i wish i'd done it earlier i was scared to do my arm just because it's so bold but I really wish I had done it earlier. Um I'm working on a leg sleeve right now, too. <laughs> so a full leg sleeve. Well, I'm just doing the top right now. I have one little space left. I'm doing all American traditional style and it's all different things that I'm sort of into. Um some of my favorite movies. I have a a bottle of lotion in a basket. On my leg <laughs> that is done <laughs> in <laughs> American yes, <laughs> <reference>. <laughs> In American traditional style, on my leg, um, and I'm kind of contemplating going all the way to my ankle, because I really kind of like wearing dresses to work again. Of course they have to cover. But when I was working with sex offenders, I always wore pants. You know, you uh-huh. had to be very mindful about how you presented. and now I'm like, oh man, I kind of like wearing a skirt and a dress every once in a while, So we'll see. I don't know.
0: Is it a policy where you work that you ha- you you can't have tattoos showing? So like if you basically, went all the way down your leg, you'd have to wear something to cover it.
1: Basically, yeah. I I have some little ones, my wrist and my ankles. Which, uh, sorry, I'm not wearing long sleeves and pants every day to cover that. Right. Um, but I, I'm mindful of it. You know, if if I have a big meeting with some deputy chiefs or something, I I am going to be a little bit more conservative conservative anyway, but. If mm-hmm. I'm standing up and doing a training in front of a bunch of cops that I already know, I mean they've got more than I do. So, <laughs>
0: <Right.
1: It's laughs> who like cares? We had, we
0: had similar policies. And so when I left the fire department to podcast full time, one of the first things I do, I did is when I finished this sleeve, is to make this tattoo just go
1: just a little bit <laughs> longer. It time. just
0: pokes down below my watch a little bit, just as a big, you know, F you to not being able to show my. There tattoos you for all go. Those years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on my hand, Too funny. just a touch. Okay, with that, we'll take a quick break, and we're going to get into the, this case of a serial arsonist named John Orr. So, Dr. Shadow, when I reached out to you, I originally reached out to you because I, I really want to, and I, I may still bring you back sometime to talk about it, you or Dr. Scott, but I really want to dig into it someday, the Chris Watts case, because the psychology of oh, yeah. that one is just fascinating to me. But you recommended that we we discuss this case of the serial arsonist, John Orr. And then I started doing some I didn't I wasn't I, to bounce with you, I wasn't familiar with the case. Okay. I started doing some some reading and research before we came on here. And it is a fascinating case. And as a fire chief and fire investigator myself, uh I'm I'm really intrigued by it. Uh so can you can you break down who who was John Orr and what did he do?
1: Sure. And I promise this is not to rag on firefighters too much. Okay. I know, <laughs> former cop, the banter goes back and forth. My brother is a firefighter, right. so I don't know where he went wrong, but um no, honestly, he's the smartest of all of us.
0: <laughs> you know cops need heroes too
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. I've heard it all um, but yes, fascinating case, and I think we are always it just doesn't resonate. We can't wrap our head around when good guys do bad things, and man, hasn't that been a theme of a lot of social justice lately, and so you know i when we look at John Orr. He was a fire captain in a city called Glendale here in Southern California, just kind of northwest of Los Angeles proper. Beautiful area, um, along the foothills, nice neighborhood, pretty decent sized fire and police departments. Um, they're usually, when you look at Southern California, when you take out kind of the, the big Los Angeles LAPDs and LA Sheriff's Department, Glendale is one of those that's kind of a moderate size uh fire and police department. And then you have, of course, all these other little tiny ones in the county as well, but just a, a kind of a sleepy, beautiful place. Um, But he was in from the 80s up through the 90s, there was a series of arsons of fires that were being set generally in stores where there was a lot of fabric or bedding or pillows and so they started of course we love to name all of our serial offenders right so he got got the name the pillow pyro and there's estimations that he set probably 2000 fires and
0: 2000
1: 2000 two thousand.
0: I have the number 21 written in my notes why do i why do i have 21 written down when there was 2000
1: well because
0: because <laughs> I'm wrong <laughs>
1: well no um so i I think a lot of it was done later and I'll give your your audience a really great reference book on this from a friend of ours um that wrote a book actually with John orr's daughter um but I think looking in hindsight and looking at the arsons that popped up even when he would travel to conferences and that's eventually how they sort of started putting the pieces together um that they're looking that there could have been as many as two thousand so. Essentially, he was, like I said, the captain, the chief arson investigator. He was also the guy, he was what we call a public information officer. So whenever somebody, some representative from the department talks to the media about what's happening, you know, this is the guy that tries to put people at ease, tries to give information. um, And he was always front and center as this Person initially after a fire broke out in Southern California, kind of that that he was like that calm, experienced voice just explaining to us what had happened. So there's this series of arsons ends up in 1987 that there ends up being a, a conference for firefighters and fire arsonist investigators sort of up the coast. But there are fires that sort of broke out all the way up there, which was really interesting. And then there's another conference where the same thing happens. So the investigators on this throughout the Southland are going, "Okay, this is really weird. We do know there is a phenomenon where firefighters have been known to be arsonists. Why don't we cross-reference the names of the people who attended both of these conferences?" And that's that's really when it when it started. Um up until then a lot of his MO had been setting fires in those fabric stores or hardware stores and what he would do is he would he would take a lit cigarette and tie it to um a pack of matches that was then embedded into whatever the fabric was or the substance that was going to be flammable he also would started off doing it in convenience stores where he would set bags of doritos on fire which is mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they're very oily they combust easily <laughs> more flammable you can start than a campfire yeah. With a bag of Doritos. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, but once, once these, these blazes started happening on the way to these conferences, they got this list of names. And then around the time, that time, they also were able to pull a fingerprint from one of the match packets. And fingerprint analysis in the eighties was not what it is now, but eventually they went through over a million sets of fingerprints in comparison and finally came up with John Orr's name. So, of course they were shocked. They wanted to more or less catch him in the act. So, what they did is obviously they put him under surveillance like you're going to do with any dangerous offender that could strike at any time. Um and he did end up going and setting a fire at Warner Brothers Studios and actually burned the fire ended up burning a lot of some really famous tv sets over there but what they did is they had the dispatcher purposefully give him the incorrect address to the studios when he was responding to the fire because it's Mm -hmm. it's very close to glendale in glendale and he went to the correct location so it was a really interesting little trick that they used to add to their Their um, evidence there. I mean, they had enough, but they were like, let's just see what happens. (laughs) And he showed up to the right place, even though they gave him the wrong address. So he eventually gets caught. Clearly, Um, it when they when they go back and they search his house, they find a fictional script or book that he's writing called Point of Origin which tells the story of a firefighter (laughs) who is basically doing everything he's doing. It's a a tell-all manuscript, if you will.
0: Right. A a fictional manuscript, but it's
1: it's documenting
0: his life.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And there's
0: got to be so much psychology there, even down to the device. You mentioned the device with the cigarette. So for those of you that maybe don't understand what's happening, basically he's made a timed Arson incendiary device. Because what right. they'll do with those is they'll light the cigarette, place the whole device somewhere, and then they can leave. And then as the cigarette burns down, it then eventually hits the matches. The matches ignite the paper. The paper ignites the yeah. material around it and goes.
1: And not uncommon in the eighties to smell cigarette smoke indoors anywhere.
0: Right. Yeah. We think now, like, well, as soon as you smell a cigarette at the hardware store, oh yeah. what's going on? But back then, yeah, it was it was no big deal that he would light these cigarettes and then. The big one that he that he I mean he was caught for maybe he got caught for twenty one for some I'm gonna figure out why I wrote twenty one on my piece of paper at some point.
1: Well, <laughs> but, those are probably but, confirmed. <laughs>
0: confirmed ones, right? Sure. But you know he was he was convicted uh, with on four counts of murder, right? Uh, for a fire at the Olds Home Center that, that occurred, it had been one of his first ones, right? It was October tenth, nineteen eighty four.
1: Right. Yes, it was. It was a hardware store, or, and there used to be a chain of them. They're called Olies here in Southern California, and this one was in South Pasadena. And there were four people that died in that, including a little boy. And right. so, because it, he would like
0: th- he would intentionally start the fires in occupied buildings. Yes, right? he wasn't just burning down vacant structures. Right
1: either. during business hours. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and so yeah, and in, in 1991, he ended up getting indicted for these charges um federally indicted a federal grand jury indicted him and um he the jury ended up being deadlocked on whether or not he would face the death penalty but they ended up sentencing Mm -hmm. him to life eventually and it it strung out forever i mean he didn't get sentenced until like 1998 which
0: oh really after the conviction Mm -hmm. Mm because he pled guilty right Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that particular case is what what fascinates me is now I've heard like you said that it, there's a there's this known kind of phenomenon right where firefighters will uh there 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 can be these arsonists who are firefighters a lot of times we see it in um like volunteer or paid on call fire departments and they're 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 it's almost they're they're obsessed with putting the yes. fires out yes and there's no fires, so they'll go start a fire so they can go put the fire out or you know, there was a, a one, I can't remember the names, but it was a famous case in the South where um, there was the the guy, you know, they got paid when they were fighting exactly wildfires and he was broke. And so he lit a giant wildfire that destroyed, killed people, destroyed all these homes. But this one, it was it, it almost seems like in, in some of the cases that he was starting the fires in order to help himself like rise to the ranks of a respected arson investigator, because that one at Ole's... The local investigators determined it was an electrical fire. Right. Which means, if you're thinking about it, he's the arsonist, he's off the hook. They don't think it's an arson. Completely. And then he comes in and says, no, this was an arson, and then proves to them how the arson happened.
1: Right, right. There's a really hysterical movie version of this with Ray Liotta that is just as good as it is bad. (laughs) Uh uh-huh. <laughs> um, right. It's it's worth a watch, you know. It's 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 pretty um, interesting, but yeah, they they play all those scenes through. It's called Point of Origin, um, but all of those scenes where Ray Liotta's in there and figuring it out and schooling them on, you know, what it should be like in his temperament. But anyway, I, I think there's a lot of different things going on with him. There, there's a lot of different. Categories that you can put arsonists into, and even when you break it down with uh, firefighter arsonist as well, I think he has a lot of criteria for what we would say is pyromania, like mm-hmm. more of the clinical diagnosis, and then also touches of what we see with firefighters, where it's sort of the hero syndrome, or you know, it's for the attention of being the guy that saved the day. So it's. Aside from the, the manuscript that they found in his home, they also found just videotape after videotape of him filming fires of structures. Um, a lot of them abandoned structures, I believe, and, and homes, I think in like areas where they were building new housing tracks, which was huge, like booming at that time in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's definitely this, this intense compulsion and voyeuristic piece to just filming it and then watching it later at some point where he's right. keeping a record of it um but when we when we look at pyromania there's def it, it falls under impulse control disorders so you have a couple different things going on usually there's a cycle with all impulse control disorders where there's the impulse there's the growing tension and then there is a uh, Release of pleasure when acting on whatever the thing is. In this case, setting the fire. And then there's relief from that urge because the urge creates so much tension and anxiety. And then generally there's some guilt with most people. It's, it's a spectrum. Some people feel some sort of guilt and then the impulse comes again. So there is that, that cycle that they go through. But usually the vast, vast majority the people who fit the diagnosis of pyromaniacs are adolescents.
0: Right. And in this case, it almost seems like there's got to be some sociopathy going on there because it doesn't seem like there's much time for guilt or cooling off between, it. like you said, he setting right. multiple fires on his way to a conference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty bold.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then I was wondering too, does he, cause, you know, one of the things that we would look for, cause you know, I, I dealt with some arsons in my day as a firefighter and as an investigator Uh, One of the things we would watch for is people in the crowd that seemed like they didn't belong. Yeah, You know, know, fire in the middle of the night and somebody's like fully dressed and creepily standing across the street watching. And we caught some people like that. And that was always explained to me is that was like part of that pyromania. That they they, they just had a compulsion to start the fire and then they wanted to watch the fire.
1: And not just the fire, but also the response. The response of emergency services and, and all of the hoopla that comes with it. Afterwards, mm-hmm. so, and he's embedded in that
0: right, well, like when he's traveling, you know when he was he's lighting these fires on the way right. up there, did it seem like did the timing work out where like he was watching that response and then disappearing, or was he just Setting these devices off all over the coast.
1: I don't know about that. I I think because it was definitely out of his jurisdiction as he's moving further, further away, Mm -hmm. it would be really suspicious if he's just like, hey, just happened to be here. (laughs)
0: Yeah, And I know that the fire started right there.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he he did. He tried to get on with LAPD and he failed the psych exam with them. No, no shit. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, they said so the the psych report, which is interesting Scott and I had had found this a while back, said that he had anxiety about relationships with women and with authority figures. Um and that it seemed mm. like he really wanted a lot of recognition for himself. So, I, you know, it's interesting right. insight um in in the book which is called burned pyromania murder and a daughter's nightmare it's by Frank Gerardo and then Laurie or Kovac um they go more into his background and there are some things that are quite antisocial quite psychopathic with him he he just got up and left his wife and new baby at one point just out the door goodbye he had asked his mother-in-law to engage in a sexual relationship with him I mean, just very, like, devoid of some social boundaries and markers and and victimizing people in, in not, not criminal ways necessarily, but really hurtful emotional psychological ways.
0: That, to me, all fits with what he's doing, especially the fact that it would be one thing if the fire he started was, like, if he started a fire kind of the end of his reign in 1990 and it killed somebody and that was like, oh, shit, maybe I should slow down. Right. But the fire where the four people died was at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, he lit a fire and the result was four people died, including a two-year-old child and a 17-year-old employee and a, and a 26-year-old mother of two and the the two-year-old's grandmother. These all innocent people died. And then he continued, you know, that, that doesn't phase him. It doesn't slow him down. He That's his launching point
1: to continue right. doing
0: more and more and more of this.
1: Yeah. And this. Where that happened, you know, this town of South Pasadena is just such a tight-knit community, and it it was big news, and it devastated the region. Um, and then, like you said, you know, there's kind of this initial, like, oh, my God, what a horrible accident. It, this is an electrical fire. But <laughs> he couldn't let that lie either, you know?
0: Well, and, and let's talk about that for a second, because I assumed when I – you know, in just my kind of cursory studying the case, that this was, you know, that the fires were intended for him to gain recognition as an investigator, right? That he comes in and you're wrong, this is what really happened. So he sets fire so that he can explain what happened, which seems like maybe there's some of that. But then as he continues, you know, to, to light fires in jurisdictions that aren't his, where he's not part of the investigation, there's obviously a lot more going on there. Why do you think that he was so... in? Well... I guess he was called into it, but why do you think he was so insistent on, like, in that particular fire to point out that it was an arson? When again, he would have been in the clear if they thought it was an accident.
1: Right. Well, so especially a lo- when we see a lot of um, violent serial offenders and individuals where psychopathy is potentially, you know, a diagnosis, well, it's not a true diagnosis, but is something that we can sort of rate someone on a scale of getting away with it they they think that's a given like of course I'm going to get away with this so right. no one's ever going to suspect me I'm smarter than everybody else let me actually just one up them and tell them how they're doing their job wrong so it's it's twofold it's it's going into it not even thinking that they're going to know it's him and then let me get ahead in my career, let me show that I'm smarter than everybody else in my tradecraft here. And, you know, it's not like he got caught because of that, like you're saying, you know, this was pretty right. early on. This is only afterwards that they put all of that together. So it worked, you know, and so it's going to reinforce his behavior.
0: Right. And he did sort of kind of, it sounds like kind of right, he he became kind of a respected arson investigator, didn't he? Did he not? Through, yeah. Yes. You know, through those years. Correct. Because he was solving his own arsons.
1: Uh, yeah. What a genius. Right. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so, you know, in regards to like his psychology too and like his manipulation of other people, uh, I read also that his daughter testified for the defense as part of his sentencing to try to help keep him from getting the death penalty. And then later kind of came around to the fact that he was like, like the fact that he, they, he did all this, had all this evidence against him she still seemed to believe he was innocent for a time before she came around and like, as you said she was part of she was one of the authors of the of that book right right like like what was do you know much about like his relationship and the dynamics with his family and the what kind of manipulation was going on there
1: i don't you know it's really interesting in the movie and i know it's um hollywood's creative liberty there but it's it's very interesting how they show that he's able to sort of be manipulative and sneaky with all of these adults in his life. Um, I think there's even like a woman on the side that he's seeing Um, and they all, everybody sees him as this hero, this wonderful person, but the adolescent daughter in the film actually confronts him about being weird and creepy. And what's your problem? Like she's seeing through it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that was from interviews with his daughter, you know, later on. Um, because the the way it's depicted fictionally or you know based on it is that he's really taken aback by that. like why how is she seeing through this? And right. he kind of acts in revenge and you know, grounding her and being harsh towards her. and I think it's because it's attacking his ego a little bit of what he's able to do. Now, as far as her sort of defending him to not have the death penalty. I mean, one, that could just be sort of her stance on the death penalty altogether. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we see this a lot with the families of offenders. I mean, they're truly, um, an indirect victim in all of this as well. We know they leave lots of indirect victims in their wake, but it's really hard to come to terms with this person that I trusted and loved and let into my life and, relied on for x, y, and z is this monster it's kind of it feels like a piece of your own identity as well and so that can be that it, that usually takes a long time to come to terms with that and um so many people struggle with that and denial is is the perfect way to do that at the beginning I mean it's a self-preservation issue at that point
0: right so do- dr Shilo before we before we wrap this up can you talk to us a little bit more about pyromania in firefighters or arson? You know, firefighters who are arsonists because that psychology—something that has always fascinated me—as someone who was, you know, my job was to protect people and put out the fires and help them—it just never really computes with me why someone would be, you know, in that profession would be starting fires.
1: Yeah, they—they they don't fit neatly into one profile. If you had to guess how many firefighters were arrested every year for arson, what would be your guess?
0: Uh, Nationally? Yes. Um, Based on your... uh,
1: I know. I'm going to say... Out of nowhere.
0: I'm going to say 50 only because the way the look in your face made me think that it's more than I think.
1: It's about 100. However, there is no official tracking database, which is really discouraging... (laughs) Uh, when I was doing research for the show that Dr. Scott and I did on LA Not So Confidential, I reached out to a police or I'm sorry, a fire psychologist at the time. And I was like, what do you guys have on this? And she sent me a report that would, I guess there's a report that gets put out every year nationally through one of the associations, but there's still no tracking system of it, which I think first responders, police and fire are a quite hesitant to track some things like this makes sense right they don't want the stigma they don't need the numbers out there um and we see that whether it's bad things that first responders are doing or when we look at um statistics on officers and firefighters who die by suicide it's just not something that they want to put out there even though it's very important because those of us who are researching need to understand it and how often it's happening But it really, from what I I understood, it really creates a huge rift within the industry and the department itself because the department's faced with the scrutiny, um, from government oversight and then the community, of course, right? Like you were talking about, those are the people that trust you to come to their rescue. And it can just make irreparable damage. Um, and the, the agencies are sort of left to pick up the pieces, but, What the research shows is that, you know, we, if you think about the screening measures that go into um, the jobs for a firefighter, what they're assuming is that weirdo arsonists try to be firefighters. (laughs) And so they're ruling, they're trying (laughs) to screen that out, right? That's what their questions Uh are. But the research indicates that the vast majority of offenders actually become arsonists after joining the fire service. So it's something that they get into, quote unquote, afterwards, not anything that could have been screened out for previous.
0: That actually makes so much sense to me from having that experience. Being, I was very young when I got into the fire service. Mm-hmm. And you think you know what it is, and you've seen it on TV, and you go to the trainings. But the first time that that bell goes off and you go fight an actual, you know, like a working structure fire. We call it, there's a house or a building that's burning and we're kicking down the door and we're going inside and it's hot and it's not like TV. It's dark. It's black. You can't see. There's you're. You can hear the crackling. The heat's burning your shoulders as you're going in and you're, and you're fighting this fire. There is such a surge of adrenaline. It's terrifying when you're doing it. Sure. But when you, when you fight through that and, and come out, It's literally, I can still remember the very first fire like that that I ever fought and coming out and like that is one of the most memorable experiences of my life. It's one of the greatest, you feel like it's the greatest accomplishment you've ever done. I can see how that can become a draw. I I shouldn't say I could, I have seen it. Yeah. Certainly myself as a young man and many young firefighters that I trained throughout the year, not to the point of arsonist, but to, to the point where- you know, here I am, the you know the veteran sitting around the table trying to eat dinner, praying to God the the horn doesn't go exactly. off. Exactly. And you got your your five probies that are sitting in there, just like we need a fire. Chomping at the bit. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So it, it is. It, it it makes sense that after they get into it and after they experience fighting fires and and get ingrained in that or it gets ingrained in them that they would then become these. Arsonist. Afterwards, I, I've never thought about it. But after you said that, it's like yeah, oh, that makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. They they have found cases where you know generally it's a lone firefighter when we're looking at like the attention seeking and the hero stuff. Mm-hmm. Usually a mean age of about twenty four years old, so on the younger side. But they've also mm-hmm. had situations where it's been a group dynamic where a station, the guys will agree to go set a fire. To maybe get some overtime or to, right. you know, when, when we're talking about, there's there's a lot of different reasons why people stage different types of crimes. Um, and sometimes it's monetary, you know. I don't know if these guys got a bunch of ex-wives and a bunch of car payments to make or something. <laughs> maybe they're coming up with this idea jokingly one day and then decide to do it.
0: You know, a big part of this, I think that uh, most people don't realize that Seventy-five percent of the fire departments in the country are volunteer fire departments. Yes. People don't realize that. Everybody thinks there's a, you know, there's there's full-time guys sitting at the fire station down the road from you. There's a three-quarter, you know, there's there's a 75% chance there's nobody in that station. And the volunteer fire service is really those they still exist, but they're few and far between. Really on the East Coast, there's some true volunteers. Yeah. But for the most part, nationwide. Volunteer firefighters actually we call a paid on call firefighter where they get paid an hourly rate when they respond to a call, and you know that screening process and things like that you're talking about for these because I've I've taught all over the country and I've been to some you know these there's and even just around here there's there's so many of these little very rural volunteer fire departments where the screening process is is Bob the chief saying "Ah, you (laughs) seem like a good fella. And they send them about, and they become firefighters. And then you tend to get a lot of these young guys too. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of that makes it you get you know somebody that didn't have any of that screening. It's a right. group of young guys right. that are uh, these nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year old adrenaline junkies. I could totally see them saying, "Why don't we just go, you know, start that vacant house on fire, and then we'll go get to go put it out because they're itching for that next fire."
1: Yeah, I mean the the research did show that the bulk of those being arrested were volunteer or paid on call. And Mm -hmm. firefighters are paid pretty well, especially in the larger metropolitan areas. You know, I kind of joked about that, but I don't think that's one of the big motivations there. I think it, um, you know, it could be somebody that had a previous impulse control disorder and this Mm -hmm. is just how it's manifesting in this part of their life. Or the, if what we find, especially I think it's similar in in fire, but in in law enforcement is when you don't have a healthy way of coping and you are exposed to trauma and you do have a a career's worth of bad stuff that you've seen and you don't know where to channel that, you know some people yes they they um lose themselves in a bottle but Others start engaging in risk-taking behavior and that can be a spectrum of all sorts of things with cops, we see it in um, drugs and alcohol, we see it in gambling, we see it in you know unsafe sex practices or um, you know not hey, whatever floats your boat like I it, as long as people aren't getting hurt, but we're see, we see a lot of like multiple short-term relationships um, people are just trying to feel, a a sense of joy or pleasure or rush or good again when they're clinically depressed. And sometimes it's in putting themselves in dangerous situations. They might not wear their vest. They might not go to a call and wait for the backup to get there. You know, there's all sorts of different ways. So I could see this specifically fitting in with firefighter first responders as also in some instances being sort of a manifestation of that.
0: That makes a lot of sense. This is fascinating stuff. And for you listeners, if you want to hear a little bit more about the ore case and Pyromania, Dr. Shiloh, the episode was called Light My Fire. It was, you guys did it about 2017. So you got to scroll back through the feed a little yes. bit. Yes.
1: <laughs> you can find it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh but the the LA Not So Confidential podcast is fantastic. They cover cases like this and they break down the psychology involved in all of them. It will make a great binge for you. And Dr. Shiloh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh my gosh, of course. Anytime, Bob, my pleasure.